And just like that, here's episode two. Welcome to Air Power Podcast, everybody. We're just going to shorten it and call it Mustang Cast because this is pretty much frequently asked questions that we posted on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, can't really think of any other things. That's all we posted on. But however, um, any questions and all questions you guys had, we're going to answer them. We tried doing this with a YouTube video uh, last summer. It worked out really, really well. We're still going to answer some of the same questions you guys had, but that's okay. Let's just go ahead and kick this off. Um, first off, thanks to our, our partners, Monkey in Paradise Premium Vodka, who have, who have put this on for a long time. You guys are going to hear me say that throughout the year. Uh, they're based in Florida, Georgia, and North, uh, excuse me, New York currently with uh, their vodka. We tried it last uh, last night all around the air show, and everybody loved it. We're here at Myrtle Beach this weekend. Absolutely phenomenal weather under this beautiful blue palmetto sky. And uh, getting ready to fly tomorrow, which is the last day of the show in front of everybody. It's going to be a good time. We got some other folks that are going to come on the podcast for episode three, but this is primarily about the P-51, the juggernaut, if you will, of the Second World War, shot down more aircraft than any other Allied aircraft. And yes, I'll go on record and say that because they just published, they being the United States Air Force, published the list of victories that the P-51 has occurred over from 1941 to 1945, and it surpassed the Hellcat for the amount of aircraft shot down in both the European and Pacific theater. Just like I said, it's a juggernaut. Go ahead and hate on it if you want, but it's the Mustang. It looks and sounds like an airplane should look and sound in my opinion. So let's get to the different variants because for those of you out there that, that already know these variants, bear with me. This is for the folks that don't know all of the models completely, but we're going to start with the P-51A. P-51A is a uh, Allison-powered P-51, that was the very first V-12 that it had in, in, in inside of it. Just under 1,200 horsepower, 11 to 1,200 horsepower. They're about swinging a three-bladed Curtis electric propeller. Um, the A model is a, is a, it's a really good-looking airplane. It's got the fastback still. We don't call it a Razorback because it's not a Razorback. It's got a fastback. It's got the Allison engine in it. It didn't really, didn't really have the oomph to get it up to altitude. It had a single-stage, single-speed supercharger, and... Uh, Depends on whose history book you read, but it was either the RAF and or North American Aviation, the company that built it, that got the the deciding factor to put the Rolls-Royce designed Packard built Merlin in the airplane and actually made it the airplane that it, it, it became, for the lack of words, the one that just became the high altitude, uh, long range interceptor pursuit escort fighter that it is. Um, a lot of questions were asked about why the Merlin. Well, because it was the best choice for, for at the time. Uh, the Merlin became, for the, for the size and the shape, trying to keep the airplane as streamlined as it can, both of these engines, both the Allison and the Merlin, were water-cooled, meaning that it's water-glycol mix, generally either a 60-40 or 70-30 mix of glycol and distilled water. To help people, just like your car, it has a. You guys call it antifreeze in your car. We call it coolant in the P fifty one. It's the same thing. As a matter of fact, a lot of people are running Prestone fifty fifty in their Mustangs. Don't recommend that, by the way. But, however, um, a lot of people do run that. It works pretty decently. It doesn't cool as well as a lot of the other uh, glycols out there. But 
Um, a lot of times you'll see P-51s on the ground at air shows. They'll be down at the end of the runway, and you'll see them run up to a certain RPM setting. What that does is it actually it's a it's the best rate of cooling on the ground. It's around 1,500 RPM thereabouts, and they'll be into the wind, just trying to keep their engine cool. You're not going to overheat. You see like the P-40s or the P-38s a lot of times, or P-63s, P-39s. Airplanes that are Allison-specific, they will shut down. They'll just, they've got about eight to 10 minutes on the ground, if that sometimes, uh, of running at temperature and they've got to shut down because the radiators in them are very, very small. So the P-51 has a rather large radiator. That's the scoop that's underneath, by the way. That's not an air inlet for the engine. That is a radiator and oil cooler housing is what it is. They put it in the middle there to decrease drag, but, uh, they've had it there and, it gives it. It gives the P fifty one that unique shape. It also gives. If you look at a Hawker Hurricane, it has it in the same location. The Spitfire guys does the Supermarine decided to put it in the in the wings of all places. Which uh, when we get to Spitfire cast much later in the year, we will talk about why that's just an absolutely horrible idea. Especially when you're trying to land and you put the flaps down and it blanks out the uh, blanks out the air coming in. But that's a whole other story. You know, whenever you put a Put a dam in the back of something; it doesn't allow, allow her in the front. Science is a great thing. So, but anyways, um, getting onto the variants. So then you get to the to the Bravo and Charlie models, the B and C models. They were the very first ones that had the licensed, built Packard Merlin engines. So yes, people call it a Rolls Royce Merlin. Look, it never had a Rolls Royce Merlin in it ever. Yeah. So what? It says Rolls Royce on the engine. Uh, but it was built under license by the Packard Motor Car Company. And there are stark differences between the Rolls-Royce and the Packard Merlin, primarily being the assembly techniques. The Rolls-Royce Merlins were hand-built. They can only build so many per day, per hour, per month, whatever you want to whatever you want to use as a quota. The Packard folks took essentially Henry Ford's assembly line techniques and standardized everything. So if I take my heads and banks, which are the are the the V portion of the engine, if you will. The heads and banks are the are the V uh, top end of the engine. I can take my heads and banks off of my dash seven Merlin and put it on any other Packard dash seven Merlin, and it will fit because the holes line up. However, when you start mixing and matching, you do like a Rolls Royce Merlin heads and banks of some other mark. It's it's not going to be the same thing. And when we say marks, we're talking about the British. So the British, whenever they had the Rolls Royce Merlins, they had Mark Ones, Mark Twos, Mark Threes, whatever you want to call it, all the way up to, I mean several, I mean several series. I I, I can't remember exactly how many. It's well into the seventies. So the mark that we're using in the P fifty one, especially the D model, the Dash seven, is a Mark sixty one. So that means it's the sixty first variant of the of the Merlin engine. All Merlins are 1,650 cubic inch, and that's about where it stops. The engine mounts are different in all of them, um, and I'm using Rolls-Royce versus Packard. So you couldn't take a Spitfire engine and put it in a, in a P-51. So that's where that rumor stops because there's no way you can. It's a completely different engine mount. Um, yeah, so and just trying to dispel that rumor there. Um, but that's why the Merlin, because it, was, it, was, it afforded high-altitude capabilities because it had a two-stage two-speed supercharger the supercharger on the back of it difference between a supercharger and a turbocharger for those of you that don't know a supercharger is actually driven from the motor and a turbocharger is driven off of exhaust gases meaning that there's no mechanical actual connection to the engine it's driven off of the the, the turbine section of the exhaust well the supercharger is 
proponent, there's no lag. So whenever I go up on the power on, on a Merlin, it's instantaneous. There's no lag of a, of a, of a turbo pushing combustion into their combust air into uh, the cylinders. However, um, you have two of them in series and you have the ability whenever you go to altitude to actually vary the speed. You're always flying in what's called low blower or low speed. Now you'll have the ability to clutch that and actually drive it at a different rate and turn it at a higher speed, which gives me sea level power up to in the mid twenties thereabouts. So 61 inches of manifold pressure. We use manifold pressure, which is inches of mercury. Um, 61 inches of manifold pressure is takeoff in the, in the P 51. Once I clutch high blower, I can get 61 inches all the way up into the mid twenties, which gave this thing just a, a, a boost. You know, the, most of the bombers in the second world war were in the high twenties, to low thirties. And these P 51s would go above them. It's capable of 41,000 feet. Someone was asking what's the service ceiling on it. The book says 41,000 feet. I believe uh, a gentleman did uh, a gentleman broke that record a couple of years ago and went to 44,000 feet. But with no modifications to the engine, it was a dash nine, which is, which is a little bit later Merlin, but essentially the same thing. So that's uh, back to the variants. The B and the C model still had the fast back um, version, meaning not the bubble canopy. They had the, we'll call it a Razorback, but that's not a correct term for it. And it had a four blade Hamilton standard propeller. So when you look at a P-51 and it says, oh, is this the Merlin or the Allison? The easy way to tell if it has a Merlin or an Allison, if it has four propeller blades, it's a Merlin. If it has three, it's an Allison. And that's that's every P-51 out there. Uh, if you can't tell from a distance, let's say you're across the ramp or, you know, it's 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 down the way, all you got to do is count the propeller blades. And that's only on P-51s. I'm not... I'm not counting P-40s because the P-40s did have a, there is a variant of the P-40, the F model that had a, a Packard Merlin in it. It swung a three-bladed propeller, so that that doesn't count. But for P-51s, if it has four blades, it's a Merlin. If it has three blades, it's an Allison. So now let's get to the most popular model, the D model. 7,900 of these D models were made, primarily from late 43 all the way through mid-45. And the D model was, has the bubble canopy, has that, P-51 look that we all know and love. And uh, by far was, I mean, in my in my opinion, it's the best looking 51. Um, it's not just because I fly one and work on one and, and all that jazz, but it uh, it definitely gives it some, some sexy lines. And then you get to the H model, which um, looks like a third grader drew a picture of a D model and North American looked at it and goes, hmm, that's good. Let's build that airplane. That's an H model for you. It's swinging a four-blade Hamilton standard propeller and had really, really stiff legs. Has the gross weight of a, excuse me, has an empty weight of the gross weight of a T6. So what they tried to do is they tried to lighten the P51 in every single way they could to make it fu- make it faster. And it was the fastest variant of the Mustang by far, but uh, production, I should say. But tall tail, um, you know, Cavalier and all the all the post-war companies used the H style tail for a lot of them, especially the, the dual controls, the TFs, they use that. But, uh, yeah, the H model, it, it just, it looks like a cartoon character and it looks like somebody just was like, Oh, like Hanna Barbera drew something. And it was like, damn, damn, that looks good. So push, there it goes. Um, there was one variant that I skipped over, which was a K model, which is a very little known, uh, variant of it. And the only difference between a D and a K is the propeller. So a D airframe with an Aeroproducts, what we call a toothpick propeller, which is a Aeroproducts was a different uh, propeller manufacturer. 
uh, if it if it's a D model with an Aero Products propeller on it, essentially that makes it a K. And they were only made in Texas. So um, back to some of the variants. The the Bs and the Cs. The only difference between the Bs and the Cs is where they were made. Bs were made in California. Cs were made in Dallas, Texas. For D models, they were made in both. For instance, Quicksilver, the one I fly, was made in Dallas. It was made when now we know it was made in July of 1945. That's essentially when it rolled off the assembly line. So, for those of you asking, what's the combat history of Quicksilver? <laughs> it doesn't exist. The airplane didn't even see combat in Korea. It was a my airplane rolled off the assembly line. We think late July, which is kind of ironic because that's my that's my birthday is is July 31st. Uh, it'd be kind of cool if we actually found the exact date, but North Americans records were, yeah, they were, they were, they were kind of spotty around that time. We were winning the war. All they were worried about was cranking out Mustangs and mine was what's called a dash 25 or a block 25 NT, which means that it was built in Texas. Any of the other Mustangs you see out there, you'll see like an alphabet soup at the end of all these P51. So if it's like a P51 D dash 25 NT, that's a block 25 NT means it's North American built in Texas. All right, so if you see a P5120NA, that means it's a P51 Block 20A built in Inglewood, California. The A stands for Inglewood, so that's a big difference. If you ever see that on uh, some of the gaming networks, uh, uh, I know War Thunder is a big thing, and I get a lot of questions about you know, d- does does the DCS Mustang or the or the Flight Sim Mustang fly like the real thing? No Flight Sim airplane's ever going to fly like the real thing, guys. Um, you know, a, a geek moment and a geek uh, uh, admittance to you guys is I actually do play War Thunder, and for some reason the 51 doesn't fly anything like a real P-51. I was really excited once I got the airplane, and uh, I was really disappointed. I was like, God, they're really downplaying, like, especially like power setting for power setting, airspeed for airspeed, altitude for altitude. It would not hit what the real Mustang would do, and I'm like, you know, they're really downplaying this, but so... For those of you asking, does it does it fly like the real thing? No, it doesn't. Especially on War Thunder, they've really downplayed that airplane. Um, back to some other things. Now we've gone over the variants. Now we've gone over all that kind of stuff. Uh, all of these, by the way, questions are from comments and DMs from Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we've went over why the Merlin um, versus the Allison, that kind of stuff. Somebody was asking about spins in the P fifty one, talking about uh, you know they heard they were deadly and they heard they were. Uh, something to be afraid of. Yes, yes, you should be very afraid of a spin in a P-51. Um, there's a school of thought out there that tells you not to fly the airplane slow. I respectfully disagree that if you know how to fly the airplane and you know how to fly the wing, the wing is by far more um, of a factor than the engine torque will ever be. And everybody always talks about, ah, oh, you know, the torque rules, which we're going to get to. That's a frequently asked question. But... Um, the high-speed laminar flow wing of the P-51 has by far hurt and fatally injured more people over the past 60 years than any other factor of the P-51. Now, what I'm talking about there is when I say laminar flow, it means that it's a very smooth flow. It's made for high-altitude, high-speed flying. So it obviously has a, I don't want to call it a nasty stall characteristic, but it has a different stall characteristic for those of you that are pilots out there. Um, you always, you always learn about the, the stall buffet and the, and, you know, tracking the stall and all that kind of stuff. Um, the Mustang has a, that you can stall track very, very well in a 51. If you know what you're, it's just a feel, you know, the, the P 51 is anything that any of these world war two fighters, but especially the P 51, you wear it like a glove, you put it on and the airplane just becomes a part of you. 
you roll your eyes to the left and you're in a left-hand turn. The airplane flies like a dream. It is a very well-behaved airplane. It's just when you start flying like an asshole that it's going to start treating you like an asshole. That's the way it's going to be. Stupid wins, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. That's what I've always said. And you know, when guys start getting slow, they get high speed and they start getting stick, stick happy. I mean, they start getting, you know, ham fisted on the controls and locking up. That's when stuff's going to happen. Um, so the stalks characteristics of the 51 is called an oscillation spin. So essentially the airplane will go, um, we'll, we'll talk about like a left-hand spin, for instance. So let's say you're going nose up and the airplane starts to drop a left wing and you just let it go and you let it go into a, a full-blown spin. The airplane's going to roll onto its back and then it's going to sort of like snap back upright and go for flat for about... Uh, about half a turn and then it's going to do that nasty like flip over on its back and do like a a flap uh, go flat again Um, it's called an oscillation spin you lose 1,000 feet for every 360 degrees a turn so to put that in perspective a CRJ 200 which is a regional jet that uh, a lot of the carriers fly is 1,100 feet per per 360 degrees a turn so it loses the same amount as a regional jet airliner in a in a full-blown spin uh, so that how bad is the spin? It sucks. It's horrible. I've done it once. I'll never do it again. Uh, the airplane is, it's almost like the controls are disconnected until you get to like, th- like thicker air. I like to think of myself as a, as a pretty decent aerobatic pilot, but you know, it took me a couple spins to get the airplane to actually, there's a couple turns I should say to actually do what I wanted. And if I was low to the ground, there would be, there would be no saving that in any way, shape or form. So the spins are something to be, be, wary of but you never you never fear really anything in this airplane you have to respect it when you fly this airplane you respect everything you respect the torque you respect the wing you respect all the all the aerobatic capabilities of it and most importantly the history because i mean you're you're flying there's no difference between flying a mustang and flying a national like a national treasure there's no difference in it and taking the you know the washington monument for a spin as ed shipley used to say Um, there's you just got to honor the airplane so anyways that spins um, people were asking about TBO on the engines. Well, it depends who you ask, which that also goes into one of our questions. Who's overhauling these? Well, there's, there's actually quite a few of these folks overhauling these, these engines. Two of the, two of the big players in the game. Number one, in my opinion is, is vintage V12s in Tehachapi, California. Uh, Jose Flores out there builds by far the, the, the finest Merlin on the face of the planet. That's what I've been flying now for or going on just under a thousand hours and you you will do a top overhaul about half of that so between 350 and 500 hours you're going to do a top end overhaul which means you take those heads and banks i was talking about the v portion of the engine um and you're going to you know put new sleeves in it put new valves in it put uh grind the cam make sure it fits well uh that's that's pretty much it because you know there's not a whole lot of oil pressure up there it's splash oil pressure up there it's not a high pressure area um, so that's, so that's one of the areas you're going to have to do. That's an overhaul. So 350 to 500 for the top end for the bottom end, anywhere between 750. And I've, I've heard as high as 15 to, to 1800 hours on the bottom end. It depends on, depends on how you run it. Um, my, myself, I, I fully plan on trend monitoring my, my engine and seeing when, when the oil pressure will fall below a certain value. And that's when I'm going to pull my engine. My, my engine's a vintage V12 motor and it's running like a watch knock on wood. Um, here we are in, you know, uh, end of April, 2018. And, and the thing is just, it's running like a watch. It's, it's, 
that's a phenomenal piece of machinery. Also, you have Roush Aviation up in uh, up in Michigan, which is the famous Jack Roush of NASCAR. He builds he builds a very good engine as well, and you'll you'll hear a lot of folks using Roush engines, Roush parts. He has he actually manufactures a lot of the parts that are hard to find. Um, a lot of the pistons, connecting rods. Um, I mean, before I label them all off here, that's that's pretty much what he's he's doing. He's doing a lot for the industry as well. So you, those are the two big players. And you've got other guys. You've got you know Mike Barrow, Ricky Schulnheiser, all these guys that are that are building them all around the country. So that's. That's essentially the builder's portion of it. Is there a shortage of parts? No, there's not a shortage of parts for Merlins. There's plenty of parts out there. I've never had an issue finding them. Uh, everyone else that I know that that operates a 51 has not had issue finding them. A lot of these were, were saved after the war for anything from tractor pulls, which everybody always focuses on tractor pulls, but more Allisons were focused on tractor pulls. Um, it's a much sturdier bottom-end engine. But uh, Merlins were used primarily in sawmills, believe it or not. Uh, a lot of the sawmills would use Merlins to to run the built gears to uh, you know to saw the big logs. And uh, one of the stories my my father used to tell was he was having lunch at Lockheed when he was working at Lockheed with a guy, and he was telling a story about when he was growing up as a kid. Uh, just after the Second World War, you could buy a lot of these Merlins for for surplus. Not a whole lot of them, but but quite a bit of them and you could buy them for pennies on the dollar virtually you'd buy them and you'd put them on a in a sawmill on sort of like a, a makeshift stand if you will run them on auto gas they'd start them up and they wouldn't go above about uh, about 30 inches okay so let's call it normally aspirated so you wouldn't you wouldn't get the supercharger kicking in too much you would just run it up about for those of you who want percent throttle i don't know 45 percent throttle 40 percent throttle and what it would do is it would it would run the the belts that would drive the the saws, obviously, in the sawmills, and they would run all day and all night. All they would do is, you know, they would if it needed oil change, they would change or let it change its own oil. They would just keep adding oil to it until it, you know, until it either blew up or ran out of gas. And whenever something would break, they would unbolt it, so four bolts that hold the uh, uh, engine mounts in, and they would kick it into the river. Yep, that's right. They would just kick it into the river, and. Uh, Put in a new one because they bought it for virtually a couple bucks. Boom, new Merlin in, start it up, break it in, run it, and in you know less than ten minutes they were they were had the sawmill going again. And I always remember that story, even as a kid, my dad telling me that story. Uh, what river was it? I, I don't remember. It's up in up in you know the Minnesota, North Dakota, uh, northern area. It's one of those rivers up there wherever you find the. Uh, uh, lots of the sawmills, you see the lumberjacks floating down the rivers with the with the logs. That's that's pretty much where where that was. So that's another another story. But a lot of those sawmills bought up those engines and they never used them. So a lot of those engines became surplus. And whenever these airplanes came out of inventory in 1956 and 1957, a lot of these were sold off just like that. So that's where that came from. That's a neat little story I wanted to tell you guys. Um. Just going down the list of uh, stuff here. What makes the whistling noise? Okay, um, another heavily, heavily debated thing. Guys will guys will argue this left and right, but myself and when my father was still alive, him and I did a sort of a, a little MythBusters experiment, if you will. And we always heard that it was the gun barrels. Okay, so we put some gorilla tape over the gun barrels and went and, and I did a demo at a practice day at an air show and it didn't howl once. 
take them off the next day and start howling. Now, in certain regimes of flight, it will howl. And when I say regimes of flight, meaning that whenever you put load on the airplane, you put or we call AOA, alpha, for those of you that are pilots, uh, whenever you start putting G's on the airplane, whenever you start turning, you start pulling, it's like blowing over a Coke bottle. That's exactly what it is. And that's what the whistle is. And everybody says, ah, you know, there's Reno racers out there with no gun barrels that whistle. Yeah, dude, they don't whistle like my airplane or Crazy Horse 2 or any of these other guys that are out doing like serious acro, they don't whistle like that. So I don't want to hear that. It is the gun barrels that do the whistle. Um, primarily it's just that inboard gun barrel cause it is recessed for magazine clearance. So that's what you're hearing is primarily the inboard gun barrel. That's what that's whistling there. Uh, somebody asked how long of a flight have I ever done in my airplane? Well, my airplane only has the two wing tanks. That's 92 gallons aside, 90 usable aside. So we'll just call it 180 gallons. So if I flame out at like two hours and 45 minutes, that's when it would be. So the longest flight I've ever done with the reserve is about two hours and two hours, 20 minutes, two hours, 25 minutes with the two wing tanks. If I had drop tanks, I could probably go further, but to be honest with you, you're in a, you're in a high noise atmosphere. It's hot up there. Uh, it's not the most comfortable seat. You know, it's made to, you know, I always tell people fighters are made to break shit and kill people. They're not made to go places, you know, fast and, and arrive cool. They're made to do one thing and one thing only. So your comfort level is probably not in North Americans wheelhouse in 1944, 1945. So after about two hours, you want to get on the ground, stretch your legs, um, you know, use the facilities, have a drink, do whatever you want to do. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty much it for that. Um, back to, back to characteristics of the airplane. People were talking about the torque and yaw motion of it. Um, in order to get this airplane to really quote unquote torque roll on you, you really have to get it. You really have to get it really, really slow. When I say really slow, I mean like even below approach speed. Cause I've, I've gone up and, and approach speed in the airplane for, for me, by the way, is 115 miles an hour. The, the airplane is in miles an hour, not knots, because that's what it was certified in. So if you hear me say a value, it's in miles an hour. So 115 miles an hour, and I've gone to full power, and the airplane didn't torque, okay? But you start getting it even below that, below your approach speed into, like, flare speeds, uh, 80, 90, that kind of stuff. Yeah. The airplane wants to actually yaw violently and that yawing, meaning that that rotation around the, the vertical axis makes your right wing travel further than your left wing. Well, that creates more lift on the right hand side. So now it obviously wants to torque and the torque of the engine is helping that as well. So yeah, there is a slight torque roll in there, but, um, you know, they don't really roll over on their back and, and, and kill people uh, whenever they do go arounds. What happens is people yaw, the airplane starts, starts to flip, it catches a wingtip and then flips over. That's generally where it happens. Um, when you would watch, uh, it, for those of you that had the fortune of watching Bob Hoover back in the day, back in the seventies and eighties, he would come down and touch on one wheel and pull up and roll. Well, what he would do is he would come in at, at higher than approach speed, touch down on one wheel pull up and add power because that would help him roll at a slower airspeed. That's, that's one of the things that he did. It wasn't really a torque roll, but the torque helped him roll if that makes any sense. So not a little, another little tidbit for you. Um, let's see here. Physical conditioning. People were asking about, okay, so what does it take to, to fly the airplane? Uh, essentially the way I do. Well, uh, I, I try to take pride in, in, in the style of flying. It's more of a it's more of a competition aerobatic, uh, crisp, uh, single ship ACC demo style of flying that I do. 
Um, I don't, I don't really believe in old man aerobatics. These are fighter airplanes. You should fly them as such. My airplane's a, a virtually a new build airplane. So fly it as such. And you know, the airplane is stressed to plus eight, negative four, which doesn't, doesn't mean that I have to go anywhere near plus eight, negative four, but man, that gives me a wide range. I mean, you gotta be honest here. You know, an extra is only plus nine. So, I mean, that really gives me a, a really large envelope to, to play with. Cause I'm really not doing negative push stuff. I mean, I, I might go to zero on a, on a couple things, whether I'm going over the top or negative one, whenever I'm holding a, a, a you know, a, a inverted pass or an inverted wing wave, something like that. But everything I do is well within the, the envelope of the aircraft. And in order to do that, you have to be in some sort of physical condition to, to either pull those G's, sustain those G's, you hear guys, a lot of the Red Bull guys go into like 10 and 11 G's or 10 G's. I should say, I think they, I think they red line out at 10. Um, and you know, that's actually a long pole that you hear that they're going for 10. A lot of the other stuff you guys hear, yeah, you know, he hit nine or he hit 10 in an extra is what I'm talking about here. Like the competition aerobatic aircraft, they'll only hit that for two, maybe three seconds. If you look at any of the online videos of me doing the, the vertical rolls or the, the loop with the roll on top, that is that is that is five and six G's for almost in between seven to ten seconds, depending on whatever the whatever the maneuver is. So I'm sustaining that for a much longer time period. Yes, that is a a lower G, but at the same time, you're sustaining it for a much longer time period than your, you know, your quick pull and an extra and an MX and then a tumble. So that's that's where I'm coming from on that. So in order to do that, you have to be in in not peak physical condition, but you you might as well do something to keep yourself uh, uh, healthy. And everybody's like, ah, oh, do you run? Do you do all this kind of stuff? Well, I do weightlifting. I mean, I, I, I personally think weight training and myself and, and a lot of these other guys that have studied this stuff, uh, Rick Volker for one, who does a, who does an amazing routine in a, in a Harvard and a Sukhoi, um, also in very good shape for, for his age. We really believe that, that weightlifting is the key, you know, cardio has, has shown to actually decrease your G tolerance over time. Uh, weightlifting, core, uh, core building, leg building, especially back. A lot of people neglect their back and they have start having back problems whenever they're doing this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and your in your shoulders and people talk about well, like, well, why your shoulders? Well, your shoulders include your, your trapezoids, which, um, which, which sort of hold the back of your neck. And that is a huge injury area for anybody doing doing these aerobatics. So keeping yourself, keeping these muscles at least exercised every once in a while, um, you don't have to go as crazy as myself, but I mean, keeping these muscles warm and exercise and, and at least pumped every once in a while is really going to, I mean, I noticed a difference whenever I started working out heavily, my, it changed my entire routine. Um, and back is primarily the stabilizer for this whole thing, back core and legs. So that's, that's for my, for my physical stuff. That's just work for what works for me. Um, and we're going to wrap it up here. We're getting up to getting up to the half hour mark here. So we've gone over torque. We've gone over the we've gone over the aerodynamics of the airplane. Real quick, people were asking about the paint scheme of the airplane. If you go to my website, QuicksilverMustang.com, it tells you anything and everything you need to know about my particular paint scheme. No, Quicksilver was not painted as a World War II P fifty one as a flying memorial to our veterans. Every marking and and symbol on it stands for something. Every speck of paint stands for something. And I, I'm not going to spoil it for you right now, but for those of you that don't know the story about the black paint, go read about our special black paint. 
every single bit of black paint has something just little, little surprise for you there. That's honoring our, our, our nation's veterans here in the U S and, uh, would love for you guys to come and uh, go and read that. Um, just sort of, just sort of wrapping this whole thing up. One of the number one questions we get is how do I get to a fighter? How do I get to a Mustang? How do I get to a Corsair? How do I do this? How do I do that? Okay. So let's go ahead and assume you're a pilot. Cause duh, that's probably the first step. Um, when I say a pilot, you're just going to go to insert flight school, insert university, insert whatever you want to call it here and get your pilot's license. So the P 51 obviously has a tailwheel. So you need a tailwheel endorsement. It's over 200 horsepower. So you need a high performance endorsement. It has retractable tail, uh, it has retractable landing gear. So you need a complex endorsement. So there, there is your basis to get in this aircraft. Does that mean you're qualified to fly a Mustang? No, but that's a good start. So the next thing you need to do is you need to find, or excuse me, you need to get some tailwheel time. When I say get some tailwheel time is that you need to go out and you need to not fly cross country in a tailwheel. You need to stay in the pattern. You need to uh, go out there and, and work your tail off and understand anything and everything about tailwheel flying. Go, go have, go do an entire day of crosswind landings. Go find the worst runway you can. When I say that, meaning that like it's 90 degrees to the wind and do 10 patterns. You're going to learn more from crosswind landings than you're ever going to. And just, you know, calm wind conditions, three point landings. So go and do that. And then what you need to do is you need to either join an organization or start volunteering with somebody that has a T6, a T6, SNJ, Harvard, whatever, whatever you call it. It's the same damn airplane. Find one of those and do your time. When I say do your time, I mean like, don't just be like, Hey, I have tailwheel time. I want to fly a Mustang someday. You should let me fly your T6. Why don't you appreciate the airplane? One of my favorite flying airplanes in this world is the T6. And I'm blessed every single year to, to go back to, to Dubuque, Iowa and help train the next generation of formation pilots in, uh, T6 and SNJ formation flying. It's the, the dumbest thing I ever did was get rid of my T6 because I miss it every single day. It's such a, it's such a wonderful airplane. It'll humble you in a second. We always used to say that the, the Piper Cub would humble you, but let me tell you something. The T6 the T6 will get you ready for a P51. Uh, you fly it from the, you know, work your way into it. Um, do what you got to do. And I'm going to say this one thing I was talking with Patty yesterday about this, Patty Wagstaff. Number one way to get into one of these things is don't be an asshole. That Just don't be an asshole. Uh, don't pretend like these people owe you something. Don't pretend like you you deserve this work your time. If they want you to clean, if they want you to clean the toilets in their hangar or sweep their hangar or wax their airplane or do whatever it is, earn your time in this airplane. Okay. And every single hour you get in this airplane, just learn the maximum you can. So don't go cross country in a T6. Once again, stay in the pattern. Go, why don't you go out and do a stall series in the airplane, get to know the airplane intimately and transition to the back seat as soon as you can. Because the back seat is going to get you ready for the sight picture of a P-51 or a Corsair or a P-40 or any of these other fighters. That is, that's really the, the ticket. And you start instructing or start flying, start giving rides, do whatever you got to do, but get your back seat T-6 time. And I've always said, if you can essentially hit your mark or hit your landing area nine out of 10 times from the backseat of a, of a T six smoothly, you're probably ready for, for a fighter. Okay. So, and I'm not going to put a, a, an hour value on that. We'll just say between 
150 and 300 hours. Okay. I know 300 hours is like the top limit, but Hey, there's some people that need it before you go into a fighter. So we'll say 150. And then the next thing you need to do is once again, volunteer with an organization. Commemorative Air Force has, has, has wings all around this country and do your time. Once again, it's, this stuff's not going to happen soon. It's not going to be a, a two year deal. You're not going to get in a 51 in two years. No one has ever. I didn't, the guy before me didn't, and no one else did. So do your time, find a commemorative air force wing, find a, a museum that's flying one of these 51s, find uh, an individual that has a, that has a 51. And the next thing you need to do is start, start doing whatever you got to do, change, help him change tires, help him sweep out the hangar. Once again, it's the same thing. It's doing your time. And hopefully he'll, he'll eventually give you the, the keys to the airplane and short of buying one. That's, that's your best bet. And you know what? In the, in the end, game that's the most rewarding because you can say man i earned this you know other than anyone else other than anyone else that just went out and wrote a two million dollar check i earned this and i i encourage all of you that are out there to either look at these organizations join nata north american trainer association they have so many opportunities for people that are in love with anything from the b25 to the t6 to the p51 to any other north american aircraft out there they give you opportunities you don't even need to own an airplane and they'll give you that opportunity so look it up go to nata.org uh check them out north american trainer association that's uh, that's another good place to start so um last but not least that's kind of you know how do you how do you get there type thing but last but not least a lot of people ask is my airplane painted or polished talking about the shiny part they want to know what kind of chrome paint i'm using I'm not. That's bare aluminum. So whenever I go do these like seaside shows, like here at the Myrtle Beach Air Show, um, I'm going to have a layer of scum or a layer of sea salt all over my airplane, especially on my on my metal. Does that mean it's going to erode it? No, because after every air show, we'll take whatever oxidation layer is off on that on that metal and we'll fly it to the next show. Unfortunately, it's the it's the the devil in the details of owning a polished airplane, but. Hey, I signed up for it, so why not? But anyways, this is this is just some frequently asked questions you guys wanted to know. Um, really appreciate you guys listening to us on uh, iTunes, on Google Play, uh, Buzzsprout, whatever you guys are on. Uh, I think Pocket Cast is another one someone was telling me. Uh, really appreciate the support. Any other questions or comments, please remember to like and comment on this so we can uh, so we can boost this up and get this going and make this even more popular. Uh, our next episode is going to be a Corsair cast. It's going to, we're going to bring on my special friend, Jim Tobel. He's going he's gonna to come and talk to us about Corsairs and Korean War Hero and uh, a little bit about our Class of 45 act that we do with you. Uh, you guys may or may not have seen around the country where we fly the Mustang next to the Corsair. And, uh, yeah, anyways, um, please, by all means, rate, like, comment, do whatever you got to do for this podcast, and we will see you folks next week.